0: And welcome to another edition of Intelligence for Your Life, the podcast. I'm Gib Gerard, and we have a very special episode today. We have none other than Howie Mandel. Now, if you don't know this, back in the day, John did all of the music for Howie's show, Bobby's World, all of the weird songs, all of the show intros. That was all John Tesh's music. And uh, we have, he, he's been a great family friend for a long time. And so we were afforded the opportunity to sit down with him and talk about everything. And I really wanted to focus on his process and the story of the early half of his career, and he was gracious enough to give us way more time than we asked for. Uh, you know, he'd, we left it at 20 minutes, and he stayed and talked to us for a very long time. So I am very excited to present this to you. This, everybody, is Howie Mandel. Howie, you are from, originally you're from Toronto. I am. Obviously. I am. And you got started in the Toronto comedy scene there. I did. How did you make the transition from the Toronto comedy scene to Los Angeles? It was uh, Air Canada flight. It was an Air Canada flight and a yellow
1: cab. It was a yellow. The transition, I think, was a yellow cab to Air Canada, followed by a. um, I think it was a van, like a van that picks you up at the Leno. Actually, picked me up. No, the truth. In truth, be told, everything started on a dare. You know, it was a dare. I have never in my life thought of ramifications. I am incredibly impulsive. And the only reason that I was in a club in Toronto um, in the mid-70s, because I I didn't, disco was very big. And I'm not a drinker and I'm not a dancer. And so I don't like the club scene. And there was this explosion in the 70s of comedy clubs. And I had never seen stand-up comedy live and i went to a toronto club called yuck yucks and i was watching the show and lo and behold the uh owner said it's open mic night does anybody want to get up and the uh people who are who were at the table with me said you should do it and i went okay and with uh no real thought no real preparation uh the next thing i remember is ladies and gentlemen howie mandel and uh One thing leads to another and I'm on this radio show. The thing is that, and so that was a dare and I loved it and I loved the reaction and I loved what it was doing. And then to me, uh, uh, beyond not loving drinking and dancing and clubbing, I didn't have sports. I didn't play cards. So Yuck Yucks became my, you know, a couple times a week to just drop in and just hang out with kind of weird like-minded people. And, uh, I happened to be going down to California on a business trip, having nothing to do with what were you doing at the time that you had a business trip? Um, I had, this is going to sound crazy, but you know, I, I was in, I've, and still continue to this day to be in sales. I do sales, you know, and whether it's selling a television show mm-hmm. or whether it's I'm in real estate, I do that too, or other things that I do on the side, uh, or the, I sell myself, you know, um, at that time, I had this thing called the Uncle Sherman doll, which I had, uh, which I was, the distra- Uncle Sherman doll was his little doll, and it was an old man that wore a trench coat, and when you open the trench coat, it, it, uh, it was a flasher doll, <laughs> which was a, kind of a funny little gag, and I shipped them to Canada, and then it got stopped at the borders, they thought it was like, maybe pornographic, it was just supposed to be a funny little right. gift. And then, so I was coming here to have a meeting with the manufacturers who were going to, um, well, what I had them do is I had them detach the genitals and then I was just shipping the dolls, but then the genitals got stuck at the border. So I was having a very in-depth, highfalutin business meeting.
0: A hard time getting genitals into, the the United States from Canada. No, into Canada from the United States.
1: I was still working in Canada. I didn't live here. I didn't live in America. And then I was staying at the Hyatt on Sunset and I went to the comedy store and one of the comics who had been uh who I'd met at Yak Yak's from Detroit, Mike Binder, who's a very prolific director and writer. Um, the I think it's the he's he's got some Academy Award nominations for his not him, but people in his movies. He got me on at the comedy store because it was also amateur night and uh they saw me, but luckily there happened to be this producer in the audience, George Foster, who had a comedy game show called Make Me Laugh. And uh, he approached me, and it was my first time ever in L.A., and my I, I really knew nothing about show business. And he said, are you interested in doing television? And I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, that's why I'm here. And he had me come down, and the first set I ever was on was at KTLA, and I went there, and he told me to try to make his, his – um, secretary laugh and he said you're very good are you free tomorrow and i said yes and in those days uh, you know well they still do it today uh, they shot five shows in one day and right. i was on the show with gary shandling and i was on the show with um gallagher and then i did a couple with with mike and then i flew back to toronto and continued in the business that i was in in a regular job we did not get make me laugh in canada and when it aired I started getting phone calls, you know, being on TV yeah. then there was like three networks and a couple of local stations. Your life changed forever just being. So I started getting calls from the Mike Douglas show and the Merv Griffin show. And I would commute. I'd come down here and I would do these talk shows. And uh, one of them I did was the Merv Griffin show. And when the Merv Griffin show aired. Um, that was it. No, there's never been that. an It. But when the Merv Griffin show aired, um, Gene Simmons from Kiss yeah. saw me. And at that time, he was living with Diana Ross. And I got a call saying, would you like to be the opening act for my girlfriend? I didn't know who his girlfriend was. I didn't know. I knew what yeah. Diana Ross was. Right. And I said, oh, OK. And then that got me a gig. I went down. They flew me to, to Vegas. And I became Diana Ross's opening act. And then I wait a second. Yeah. So
0: how long were you Diana Ross's opening act?
1: Oh, I I did about a month. The audience hated me each and every night, but she loved me, because the lights would go down and the audience would roar, and they'd go they'd go, uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome. Caesar's is proud to present an evening of Diana Ross, and they would go crazy, and then and then if you listened really closely, and nobody did, but you'd hear, and now. Her uh, enjoy the funny comedy stylings of Howie Mandel, nobody right. knew who Howie yeah. Mandel was, and I had to work in front of the curtain, and it was just silence, right? And uh, it was horrible. It was it was not fun for me. But one person, you could hear one person laughing in the room, and it was usually Diana Ross looking through the curtains <laughs> giggling. But you know, they say if you could just make one person laugh, yeah. you're doing your job. It doesn't feel great as no. a comedian. It doesn't.
0: Yeah. I've opened I've opened for a bunch of bands and they they're just not in the mood for comedy at all. They just no. they everybody's just like, "Can we just get to the music? Can we skip this part?" They laugh politely at first and then they just get tired of it. I don't know why we keep doing that as an option.
1: I have no idea. I don't know that are they, are they doing it a lot now? Are people uh, yeah, having I, comedians open for music? It's
0: not as big of a deal as it used to be. I mean, it used to be every show in Vegas had a comic, but I've done it for a handful of bands and I've seen a handful of bands have that have it. And it not. was
1: never good for me because I moved no. on
0: from there and I became I opened just one show but
1: uh, I got thrown off. I was opening for Earthwind and Fire. Stop. I did, after one show, <laughs> well, you know, yeah. and and then uh, you know I came out here and I said you know I'm I'm young I'm in my early twenties I was engaged to be married to the girl I am still married to. And I said, I'm just going to give this a shot. And I came out here and give it a shot. And I was at the comedy store and I got hired to do a a young comedian special, which Mm -hmm. HBO used to run on my young comedian special. It was me, Richard Lewis, Jerry Seinfeld, Harry Anderson. And it was hosted. We did it at the Roxy on Sunset and it was hosted by the Smothers Brothers. And when that aired, we didn't have HBO in Canada. When that aired, that's what changed my that was it. Then I became known. And then I hired, again, like a salesman, I hired a guy. um, His name was Andy Noman to be my promoter. And what we would do is we would four wall all these theaters. And I started playing. That was the early 80s. I started playing theaters all over America, including Carnegie Hall, selling out, Radio City Music Hall, because I was on the Young Comedian Special. And and it became so... uh, you know, that's how I became well known, and then I started doing, you know, a lot more television. I thought the normal transition for me at that time from stand-up comedy was to do a sitcom. Right. So I had, uh, I got a meeting set up at MTM, which is Mary Tyler Moore's company, yeah. and they were known for, you know, Mary Tyler Moore and the Bob Newhart show, and all these really amazing shows that yeah. were on the on the lot. And I remember going in on a Friday and Molly Lapata, who was the casting person, said, can you act? And I, said, I, I don't know. And she said, <laughs> read this. And she gave me a side to read. And which in my mind was not, was all this medical terminology. Right. wasn't funny. I didn't know what. But she goes, thank you. That's very good. Could, could you come down the hall? And I walked down the hall and I walked into a room. And now I know, you know, it was Bruce Paltrow and Mark Tinker and John Macius and Mm -hmm. Falsey and Brand. And they had me read the same thing. And halfway through, they went, "Okay, thank you. And I went home and my wife said to me, how did it go? And I go, well, I don't think it went well, (laughs) but I'm not. I don't care because it wasn't that funny. And then within a half hour, I get a call back to go back to the network and right. and read the same thing in front of Brandon Tartikoff, who was the king of all of television
0: yeah, for very at the long time,
1: time, very, very long time. And I read that on the Friday and he goes, okay, great. That's very good. I'll see you Monday. And as it turns out, there was a drama show that uh, was being shot. They had 13 episodes. They had gotten halfway through the pilot and, And it wasn't going well. And they decided to recast some of the parts. Oh, wow. And I was recast in a show that was called Sane Elsewhere. Right. And I became Fiscus. And that ended up on... And I started on a Monday. That was a a six-year run for me, you know, with Denzel Washington. A lot of great producers and directors came out of there. A lot of amazing writers who ended up running their own shows. And I had no idea, just like I had no idea that I was going to be a stand-up comic, that I would end up on a dramatic, right. you know, television show. At the same time, I've always continued to do, you know, well over two hundred live dates a year, as I still do. Do you really today. do that much? Still- I still do today. Tomorrow, um, I'm in Oklahoma. The next day, I'm in Denver. Wow. I'm th- th- we're talking. You're recording at my office, which is in Van Nuys. I, I, I park myself right beside the Van Nuys airport because I fly out four times a week back and forth this side of the Mississippi I'll come back the same night so that I can do America's Got Talent or Deal or No Deal or whatever I happen to be working on but that's why I'm here and that's why you're talking to me here
0: How, how did you get going how did you make the transition into uh into the to the game show world I mean with Deal or No Deal was that your first game show yeah you know
1: that was I'll be honest in 2005 my career was somewhat waning. You know, I had done Bobby's World. I mm-hmm. had done St. Elsewhere. Great show, by the way. Bobby's World. Yes. You know somebody who I, uh, I, made, I, helped make that a huge success? I, you? Uh,
0: yes, I do. I had to listen to your voice recordings over and over and over again when I was a teenager. John do- is probably one of the most brilliant
1: musicians i have ever worked with john Tesh, yes is one of the most brilliant he did all the music on bobby's world and all the songs that we we
0: we still talk about underwater the fish don't stink and animals don't wear underpants you had a line in that animals don't wear underpants uh they have nothing on below their knees was one of the taglines it was one of the punchlines in that song we still make jokes about that
1: yeah well you know and they're classic and you know hopefully i can uh reboot it and have it happen again and work with John again. I love uh, John Tesh and uh, I love that t-shirt. experience. And, uh, you know, so so I had done all that in 2005. My career was waning. You know, there are mm-hmm. ebbs and flows. Totally. This was an ebb, <laughs> you know, and I got a call from NBC saying, you know, um, from my manager saying they want you to host a game show. And I went, no. And You know, you're too young to remember this, but in 2005, no comedian, no comedian had ever hosted a game show. And so much so that, you know, it was thought to be the end of a career if you were even offered that. The irony of being a game show host was not something I would consider. And not since, you know, Groucho Marx did it, you know, in You Bet Your Life. (laughs) And Johnny Carson had comedians ever hosted, you know? Mm -hmm. So I said, no. And then they called me back and they said, we can't do it without you. We would love you to do it. And I said, no. And they said, can we just show you the show? And then before you say no. And because this is really important, because it's already, this is what they told me, it's a huge hit all over the world. It's the biggest game show in the world. Mm -hmm. America is bought it. NBC bought it. And this hadn't happened before. They are going to broadcast it in prime time five nights in a row. Wow. So no network had ever done that before. This is in 2005. So they said, can we just show you it so you understand it? So I said, you know what? I don't, I'm being honest. I don't want to waste your time, Mm -hmm. but I'll tell you what. I'm in the San Fernando Valley. I'm at Jerry's Deli. Uh I'm having soup. I'll probably be here for the next half hour. If somebody would like to come on over and share some soup with me, I'll listen. And lo and behold, this guy by the name of Rob Smith from Endemol shows up and uh, you know, this is radio. I can't show you it, but I'll show you when we're off radio, he shows up with this card. He had made a project. The presentation looked like a you know a 4-year-old had done an art <laughs> project for their mom for Valentine's Day. He yeah. cut it it looked not one line is straight. It's on a white card and he made squares with a Sharpie mm-hmm. and he made numbers that I guess ended up being what were supposed to be cases. <laughs> so now he shows up, he moves my soup, he puts this this really bad art project down and I think oh my, now I get it. I'm being pranked yeah this is a prank my friends know that i love to prank Mm -hmm. i'm being pranked because i said first of all what's the show so i see this art card he says well it's just um it's we're gonna have like 26 models with cases with no i go but what is the skill is there any trivia no there's no trivia there's no skill and i said for an hour my line is open the case that's what it is (laughs) so he shows me the game and i'll tell you when it's uh one guy sitting in a deli with soup and somebody's got an art card and there's really nothing at stake Uh there's I've never been more bored in my life right and I went home and my wife says so what did you do and I said I'm saying no and she said why and I said because it's gonna be the end of my career and she said well where were you a half hour ago I said I was at the deli having soup and she goes where are you now and I said I'm home she goes you realize this is your career it can't be any less than this. So take. <laughs> Thanks, <the> d- honey. <laughs> yes, she's always there to support me. Yeah. She said, you better take the deal. So I said, okay, because uh, I don't know why I said okay, but I do listen to her. And, and I said, okay. And I called them up on, this is Friday night. Mm-hmm. I called them up on Friday. This is how everything in my career has gone. Right. And I said, yeah, I'll do it. And they said, oh, th- fantastic. We couldn't have done it without you. And I said, when does it start? And they said, Monday. And I said, well, don't you have to build a set? And they said, we built a set. And I said, well, don't you have to hire the models? They said, we we, we have the models. And then I'm thinking, how far down the list was I?
0: They, they were already before. They couldn't
1: do it without me. How many people have said no that on Friday at 4 o'clock, everybody is cast, every model, everything is built, it's lit, they have a director, you know, anyway... I thought, I said to them, it's going to start Monday. I said, well, can I hire a friend to write comedy with me? And they said, okay. So I hire a friend, and we sit all weekend. I'm sitting with my buddy, and we're writing. I got these funny little Mm -hmm. quips and Mm -hmm. all this wit that is going to happen. And I looked at old tapes of Groucho Marx. And I show up Monday morning, and the game's about to begin. And they go, ladies and gentlemen, Howie Mandel, it's deal or no deal. And I walk out on stage. And I'll never forget this. You know, I did 500 episodes. Mm -hmm. The first episode is in 2005. And it's as clear as I'm sitting there with you, with here, with you now. I walk out and I introduce the first contestant. Her name is Karen Van.
0: And I look at
1: Karen Van and I say, tell me about yourself, Karen. And Karen tells me she's got three children. She has her boys and they're sitting right there. I could see these kids Mm -hmm. right there in the audience. And uh, she's never owned a home. She's renting. She doesn't have a job. She doesn't have health insurance. And this would really change her life. And then I go, oh, my God, because first and foremost, I'm a human being. Right. You know, and I'm a father and I'm a husband and I go, oh my gosh! And I'm looking at her. I'm standing within arm's length, and you could tell when somebody has not been in show business or they mm-hmm. haven't been. There was a glaze over her because she's in Hollywood. She's not from here.
0: The lights. That's the, the, the other the, thing. People don't realize how bright the lights are when you're on a
1: television so set. So the so the lights are bright. There's 15 cameras. There's 350 people mm-hmm. surrounding her. There's a glaze, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking, you know, this is all based on your decision. There's no trivia. There's no skill you just have to be really clear and in the moment mm-hmm. to make the right decision. Right. And I got really scared about doing comedy because I thought, well that might distract her because I could see that this woman is not you want you want to snap your fingers yeah. and go hello yeah. hello which informed the cadence of how I delivered that show when the banker gave me the first offer I'm looking at Karen in the eyes like 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 you talk to a 4-year-old mm-hmm. and I'm going the offer is $20,000, $20,000, $20,000 could buy you health insurance.
0: Yeah.
1: It could buy you a down payment in a, in a house in Iowa where you live. It's not mm-hmm. LA. It's right. not New York. Right. It could change your life. So I'm going to ask you, Karen, $20,000 deal. Or no deal. And without even any thought, right. no deal. And I just wanted to throttle her. I just wanted, <laughs> oh my God, 20 grand. How can you say no deal right. for an opportunity to open up more cases, you know? Mm-hmm. And what happened was, you know, empathy took over and just the, the uh, all I want is I just root for you mm-hmm. as the contestant to make the right decision because the gravitas of how important this is overshadowed any you know, thought of me being funny, of Mm -hmm. me getting a laugh, of me heightening my career. I mean, it was so real in that moment. I ended up taping five shows like that. I finished the shows and I have never been more embarrassed, more humiliated. The feeling overwhelmingly, so much so that I had my wife book a flight. We went out to the Caribbean far into the caribbean where they didn't have american Mm -hmm. television for it to air because i was ready for this huge national humiliation of being a comedic game show host that isn't funny Mm -hmm. that isn't witty that is boring and all i wanted was for people's lives to change but Mm -hmm. that wasn't why i got into television that's not why i got into comedy that's not why i'm in show business and lo and behold, it airs the first day. You know, within a couple of weeks mm-hmm. of us finishing, it was pretty. We were on a fast track. It airs the first day, and Rob Smith, the guy who met me for soup, calls me and said, "You're not going to believe it. This shattered records." I go, "What kind of records? The lowest, right? It's the most embarrassing." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he goes, "This is huge." I go, "It's huge." He calls me the next night, bigger. Calls me the next night, bigger. He goes, "You have no idea. This is a phenomenon that we have not seen in the game show business, in in the history that I've been in." And I ended up getting on a plane. I couldn't believe what was happening. And I landed back in Miami and within Mm -hmm. 30 seconds of getting off the plane, the first person that passes me and recognizes me goes, deal or no deal. And then the next person, deal or no deal. Hey buddy, deal, you're the deal guy, you're the deal guy. And it gave me a catchphrase. And nothing I've ever done in my career Mm -hmm. has, you know, culminated such a huge audience Such a a massive, you know, energy that rekindled a career bigger and better Mm -hmm. than it had ever been. Um, When I talk about the things I did, whether it was an HBO special and comedy, that audience was very different than the audience that watched St. Elsewhere. The audience that watched Bobby's World when Mm -hmm. it was going was, you know, usually young mothers and their five-year-olds. Right. So nobody ever put... You know, I get at that time it was letters, but I would get letters going, I have a bet with my husband that the guy on Fiscus is not the same guy that pull, blows the rubber glove up on his head mm-hmm. in stand-up. Or I was told that the guy that does the voice of Bobby is the same guy that's on saying Elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Deal or No Deal brought all those audiences together because you could be five or 85 right. and sit on the edge of your seat. And so it was the biggest thing that ever happened. And that was... It it started selling tickets for my stand-up again. Mm-hmm. It started, um, I started a production company, so I was able to create and produce other shows, which I did. Deal or No Deal is about to come back, by the way.
0: Yeah, tell us when we can see Deal or No Deal.
1: In Probably in December on CNBC. We're starting in another couple of weeks to tape 30 brand-new episodes with 26 models, million-dollar prize, and I think it's time for it to be back. Yeah.
0: New. I think it's, I think it's fantastic. What I love so much about that story is that you, you had a moment of sincerity that created the whole cadence for the show.
1: Well, not only that, so that, so then I realized it was the first time I was not performing. I don't mm-hmm. think what I do on that show is perform. I just was me, you know, cause I, I, you know, I, but what was interesting was at that moment when that started airing and then, you know, NBC picked it up and ran it you know every night they could mm-hmm. it was the only thing that had a you know a beacon of light mm-hmm. for nbc at the time who was doing really poorly now they're now they're number 1 again but the but the thing is that um, I started getting calls from friends. The next show was Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader, Jeff Fox, where they took that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then Louie Anderson got on on, on Feud, Feud, which yeah. is now, you know, Steve Harvey does game yeah. shows. But now every that kind of informed producers who did game shows. We want these uh, people who can work in front of a live crowd and right. kind of work in the moment and and you know, show so now thinking of a comedian hosting a game show is kind of the norm. Obvious. Yes, it's kind of the norm, but it wasn't then, totally. and it was really scary then. So I feel like I, I shattered a little bit of a glass ceiling for comedians in the game show world.
0: Yeah, comedians have been so oppressed for so many generations. It's good that you were able to finally do that, show people how to. How, what comedians? You're welcome. <laughs> um, so you talk about. I mean, you say unthinking and unplanned. That's that's like a t- great title for your memoir. You can um, you can give me a percentage if you want. The um, what was your first act like? And I want to, we're, we're running out of time here, but what was that first act like when you unthinkingly unplanned walked out on the stage?
1: Exactly what it was. If there was a title, it's unplanned and no thought. So I, uh, the, the key was, and this is how it is for everything I do. The key was just walk out on, you know, they said I'm on, you know, at 1115. Mm-hmm. So at 1115, I'm backstage. I haven't done any prep. I didn't think about anything. Mm-hmm. I have no aspirations to be in show business. I'm a middle-class kid from Toronto, Canada. I don't know anybody in show business. There is no real show business around me. It's ridiculous to even think, you know, for a kid. You grew up in the world. I I didn't. And so I realize now, and my kids have your experience, you know, that it is just an industry and just a job and just people. But for somebody that comes from 3,000 miles from Mm -hmm. here, It's things you see on TV. It's things that you see in the movies. It's not, there's no sense of reality to it. I think now maybe with social media, it's kind of opened it up to everybody. You can sit alone at home in your underpants and have your own hit show. I do. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. But what I, what I was saying was when somebody dared me to get up, Mm -hmm. I didn't, think I have to be good I didn't think that this will lead to anything and I never think about what the ramifications are so I remember hearing ladies and gentlemen Howie Mandel and then when I heard my name I walked out and I'm standing there at the microphone and as you know as somebody who performs on stage that spotlight hits you in the eye and I'm blinded except I could see some faces in the front row and I and then I realized oh my god (laughs) I guess I have to do I have to speak? I think I have to I think I have to Oh my god, why didn't I think about this? I have to speak. But if I had a thought if I had thought about it, I wouldn't have done it. So then right. if you look at old YouTube videos mm-hmm. of me, that was my act not having anything. And that's it started like like I, it was like I got to think of something mm-hmm. and I started going, "Okay, okay. Okay." all right all right okay okay all, right, all right all right okay and that's me thinking and because mm. I'm going okay and I have that nervous energy and my mm-hmm. adrenaline is running I'm just trying to think of, okay all right here's here's okay listen to this listen to this <laughs> listen to this and people started giggling giggling at my and then they were giggling I hadn't said anything so then I st- I, I had no idea why they were so I started going what 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 okay okay what <laughs> what and that was my whole act was okay what oh, you're laughing what what oh I know I know okay okay listen to <laughs> (laughs) this and i had nothing and because i have um you know obsessive compulsive disorder and i'm a germaphobe i've always had like rubber gloves because i didn't want to touch things. i I had nothing and out of nothing i had my hands in my pocket and i felt one of my rubber gloves and i I pulled my rubber glove over my head i didn't have anything to do out of just nothing and i started breathing through my nose and the fingers were going up and down because i was breathing through my nose and the audience was roaring and i'm going and it popped off my head what 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 but that kind of inform me to, you know, just show up. Yeah. And that's what I do each and every day. I just show up. And, you know, there are things now as a producer, I realize there are things that have to be prepared. Right. But my I, I'm also a believer in life that, you know, human instinct is a very powerful thing Mm -hmm. and human thought is also powerful and that thought sometimes stands in the way of our instinct because you go how many times have you said oh i knew that i should have done that Mm -hmm. but i but i overthought it right Right. you know i overthought it and you have to be really kind of um fearless or you know comfortable with your fear i love fear Mm -hmm. i love like uh you know roller coasters and rides and I I just want to be scared because that that adrenaline makes me feel alive and I and I love that fear on stage and I love that fear of when I get a project to think I don't know how I'm gonna do this but I said yes I don't know why I said yes but that's so exciting to try to conquer it that's what life is life is a is a sport life is a game and whether it's you know raising your children there's nothing scarier or more important in your life but you got to you do it Mm -hmm. and you learn and you teach and you're always wrong. You know, like I just thought that one day I'm going to grow up and be an adult and have children and teach them about the world. Mm -hmm. And what I learned is I grew up and had children and they're teaching me about the world. I'm not teaching them, but that's what a great, you know, reflective moment. You know, you see how your words affect people. You see how your actions affect a human being. You see how somebody becomes a human being. And that makes you a better, you know, performer makes you a better human being You know, you just have to be able And my life and continues to I don't know what I'm doing next year and I don't know. And I never thought I'd be a game show host. I never thought I'd be a judge on a talent show. I never thought I'd be a comedian. I never thought I'd be the voice of a Saturday morning cartoon. I did. I certainly didn't believe that here I am in my 60s that anybody would be interested in anything that I do for a living or what I'm doing. I'm so thrilled as, as a person who didn't have a friend in the world, who was a pariah in school, everything I've ever been expelled for hit for punished for is what I get paid for today. <laughs> I don't have a GED. I'm not proud of that. My daughter just became my youngest, just became a doctor. She has a PhD. I have my, my, other daughter is a got her master's in education. She's a teacher. My son is very successful. I wasn't able to continue in school because mm-hmm. of my diagnosed much later behavioral problems, but, and, and I'm taking care of that, but it's amazing to, I live by Nike's philosophy of just do it. Don't think about it.
0: That's amazing. So I, I uh, one last thing, cause I know, I know you got to go the, um, you talk about ADHD, undiagnosed ADHD. You talk about undiagnosed b- behavioral problems. You're very public talking about your OCD and your ADHD. You you have this philosophy of just do it as your as your process. But how have you been able to be so prolific and overcome the ADHD? I haven't, and it's
1: o- OCD is the bigger is the bigger issue. I didn't overcome it, and every day is a struggle uh, is a struggle. Every um, it's always a struggle. I'm just. You know, my 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 analogy is if you have a love of a sport, you know, if you have a love of boxing, you mm-hmm. know, you're going to, if you love it, you're going to do it and you're going to strategize, but you're going to fight and it's a fight, right? You're going to be out of breath. Mm-hmm. You're going to take some hits. It's going to hurt. And it's not about how hard you hit, but how fast can you get up when you are hit? And life is like that. You know, it's just like. Even in the moment of stand-up, you know, you throw something out, it doesn't get a laugh. How do you recover from that? How right. do you do that? Everything seems to play the same. Business is a game, life is a game, and you want to. And and what happens is people just walk away and give up from that game, and they don't want to play anymore. But I think we're playing, and I play hard. And it sometimes hurts and sometimes I can't play and sometimes I'm too tired to play Mm -hmm. and sometimes I'm too scared to play. And sometimes I'm, you know, I I just don't think I could win, but I got to show up to the game. And, uh, you know, I've gotten myself to a point now where uh, am I open about it? I was open about it accidentally the first time, you know, I'm a child of the 50s -hmm. and there is a stigma involved with mental health issues and just not being perfect and not being like that Perfect family that was depicted in the '50s and '60s on TV. The the thing is that I accidentally blurted it out on a radio show on on the Howard Stern show. But in that moment, other people that made other people come forward, and I realized I'm not alone, and I'm, I'm not the only one that struggles, and I'm not alone. And we have to understand. We have to have humility and humanity, and ultimately, even as to be the better the better comedian, I have to kind of understand. On a human level, and that's why I still do 200 live dates a year. I don't want to be in L.A. and New York. I want to stand on a stage in front of middle America with real people. And, you know, ultimately, laughter means... Why are you laughing? Because I kind of understand that you understand what I'm talking about. You relate to what I'm talking about. If I'm talking about something embarrassing, then you find that embarrassing mm-hmm. too. You learn more about people standing and talking to people, whether it's in the form of stand-up comedy. But you're, I'm ta- I talk to people each and every day. So I, I realize I'm not the only one that has struggles. I'm not the only one that has you know, issues. And you aren't human if you don't have issues. You're not human if you can't ask for help. Mm-hmm. Or don't need help. Nobody goes through life without needing any help, or at least being given some coping skills, or just dealing. Life is just dealing. Careers are just dealing with something.
0: Dealing. See what? Or, or not, not dealing. dealing? Yeah. I see <laughs> yeah. what you did. Yeah. There. yeah. Well, you did it. Uh, and uh, we are. Uh, I, I don't want to take any more of your time, but this it's has okay been. It's okay if you have another question. Um, why did you get expelled from school?
1: Well, you know, the thing is I said that I don't think of ramifications and I got to say that when you think back on it, you know, laughter for me has been a great panacea. Mm -hmm. And the first time I remember laughing, you know, my parents were always, they always had a great sense of humor and I was always incredibly supported. And I used to hear them laughing at, you know, comedians on TV and records they'd bring home. And I remember being a little, I'm talking about three or four years old and hearing them laughing in the living room and i'd run in and and listen to what they were listening to but not really understanding because you know if somebody's making mother-in-law jokes i don't even know what a (laughs) mother-in-law is and i sat down and uh on one sunday and there's a guy by the name of alan funt and alan funt was the first guy that started candid camera in fact it even started on radio it was called candid radio Mm -hmm. and that's the very first prank show hidden agenda show that existed. And it was a big hit in the early 60s and before that on on radio. And my parents used to watch it and I sat down and I remember sitting there as a little kid, maybe three or four years old. And he told, he explained what he was about to do, that he was gonna hire a woman to be a receptionist. And her only job was to answer the phone. And he told her, do not miss a phone call. And then he showed us that he had a rope attached to the uh, desk and there was a wall on the side of the desk Mm -hmm. and the rope went through the wall, you couldn't see it. And whenever the phone would ring, when the woman reached for the phone, they would pull the rope from the other side of the wall and the desk would go away. So yeah. now it was kind of like that feeling of a surprise party. I understood it. Like I just that tension. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. It's like when you go to a surprise party and they say, you know, he's on the, he's on the driveway, everybody hide. So like, mm-hmm. so then I knew what the joke was going to be. That anticipation was building. It was amazing. And then, um, the first woman sits down, she's instructed, don't miss any phone calls. The phone rings. She goes to reach for the phone and whoop the, the, uh, office desk is pulled away and you see her face and her horror. And that was the most guttural deep laugh. I Mm -hmm. remember sharing with the room, you know, me and my parents. And I thought, Oh my gosh, I love this. So being innocent and, um, kind of silly and stupid, I always wanted to replicate that. So I never thought about the fact that these are people doing a television show Mm -hmm. that you need an audience. Mm -hmm. that maybe even a friend cohort would be so i continued and have continued even up to this day to do do those kind of things for my own Mm -hmm. so like one school story that i've recounted many times is like i called the yellow pages and i said um we're putting an addition onto the library could you come out and give us bids on that and, and that was, I didn't tell any friends. I didn't tell <laughs> anything, but it's not that funny because it was just for me, when you think about it, it's kind of sad, just for me to sit on third floor math class and I was watching some guy with a clipboard out in the field measuring because uh, you could see down on the thing. And that was just for me. And I'm giggling to myself. The teacher is angry at me. Why am I giggling? And then watching the uh, principal walk out to the guy who's measuring and asking what he's doing. And I'd given my name because I thought it's <laughs> just it's just funny. But you have to realize that for a 15 year old or a 16 year old at that age, mm-hmm. it's probably more important to fit in. And if you're going to be funny, maybe you want to be a witty class clown where you have a you know a witty quip that, that makes the whole audience, the yeah. whole room laugh. I never had any of that. I was shy. Mm-hmm. I am shy. I didn't want to talk. I didn't speak up. I was four foot uh, in high school. I was four foot ten and I weighed 89 pounds. You could see there's a picture of me yeah. on the wrestling team. I look like a little
0: girl. You know, I weighed eighty eight pounds. You're beautiful. Thank used, you. People people need to know that you like a like a like a young Farrah Fawcett. Thank you. Like a, a brunette Farrah Fawcett. Thank you. Yeah, Thank I was course. stunning. I was stunning. Yeah. it was, So
1: anyway, the point was that I would do this for me, and I remember the the I'd get a they'd say, "Could Howard Mandel please come down to the to the principal's office?" I went down, and just for me, it was funny. The principal, in all seriousness, saying to me, uh, "Howard." did you did you okay a guy coming here to give a bid on an addition to the library? And I would say, like, really, seriously, I'd go, you know, I'm going to be totally honest with you, sir. I'm getting three bids. <laughs> he did not laugh. And he said, uh, could you please just wait here? And I said, yes, sir. And I waited, and they called my parents. And both my parents came in, and he explained the story in front of me sitting there. And I could see my parents... Like biting their lip. I don't know what they were supposed to say. We told him never, never uh, get bids to put an addition on the library. I don't know what they were supposed to Fundamental <laughs>
0: parental thing. Don't cross the street without looking both ways. Don't have unauthorized bids for your school's additions. Right. So, and this was just one of
1: many things, you know, mm-hmm. and they didn't diagnose at that time. They just thought mm-hmm. I just, this weird, disruptive young person. Who, you know, and when other people heard about it, they didn't put it into the context of comedy. It was just because I played it serious right. because I was enjoying it and I thought it's going to break it if I didn't. You know, I'd seen them on the show. They mm-hmm. were acting all serious. The boss would come back in mm-hmm. when the desk moved. She'd explain the desk slit across the, mm-hmm. you, you know, you he says you missed three calls. Well, the desk moved. No, there's no way the desk moved. I, I played it the way I saw it, the way I learned it from the time I was four years old. I was enjoying myself. Nobody was enjoying me, so much so that they said they'd had enough of me, and I didn't finish school, but school finished with me. Mm. So I was asked to leave. And then I became a salesman. You know, that was the only thing. I had to make a living, and I had to buy my own car, and I had to... Live and survive, and other friends went on to go to law school and become doctors and do that. I love science. I've always resented the fact that I didn't really have a formal education, but I'm, i I try to voraciously gather uh, you know information and educate myself constantly and want to know more today than I knew yesterday.
0: I think that's that's a great way to approach life in general. And they say, you know, I think you're first of all. I think you're wrong. I think it. I, I know that it was sad, but I think it was actually really brilliant. The idea of getting the people to come in with a bit of the candid camera concept's amazing, um, because everybody says that that comedy is just drama plus time. And I think really what I'm hearing from you is that comedy is really drama plus perspective like a, a a perspective that comes usually comes with time but in your case it didn't take time you just thought that's funny well the, there's no around. time
1: it's, it's, you know there's another saying that people you too soon there's no too soon mm-hmm. I needed you know the saddest day of my life and the heart most heart heart-wrenching time in my life is when I lost my father I've never laughed more in that day mm-hmm. than I've laughed in my life because things were happening you know if you think of what comedy is comedy is comes from tragedy and i don't care what you're laughing at and that's why i think most people don't have a sense of humor Mm -hmm. and the sense of humor is the sense to find the humor where it shouldn't be like if you if you say you want to hear a joke just because somebody laughs at your joke Mm -hmm. they kind of know it it's rhythmic kind of like music but to find humor think about everything you'll laugh at even from the time you're a little kid if you laugh at a clown falling down, you're laughing at his misfortune. Right. If you're laughing at a pie in the face from somebody, you're laughing at, if, if somebody tells you a joke, two guys walk into a bar, what are you waiting for? You're waiting for something embarrassing to happen to right. somebody in the bar. It always comes out of a negative, dark place. You just have to have the ability. Now, what happens is people who say too soon, it's the same joke, but the real sense of humor is can you laugh at darkness mm-hmm. in the moment not five years later can you i don't necessarily condone that it's a good thing i'm just saying that people who have humor or and in these times humor is it. falling by the wayside it really is because people are so politically correct and mm-hmm. so sensitively charged mm-hmm. that we can't do what we used to do the way we used to do it and a whole art form and freedom of speech is is falling away
0: well, and the internet has kind of killed the in-the-moment nature of certain things, where you're you're going to get live-streamed doing a joke in a room that it works in, and it's going to be played to an audience that it was never intended for at times. Well, that's also beca- context. You're right.
1: It ruins all your context, because maybe with the part they play isn't even the whole setup and the punchline, so it's just politically incorrect and you know I was lucky enough to come out here in the 70s when Richard Pryor was putting together Mm -hmm. his live on the Sunset Strip and I watched him you know find that line cross that line go back and build and he was the first guy that I saw he's my biggest inspiration in stand-up comedy where he was totally fearless and what I realized is these stories and these characters that he was recounting were actually real you know real they were tragic. He had mm-hmm. a really dark upbringing, you know, by his grandmother in a brothel, you know, and, and drug abuse and really bad relationships. That was his career. That was these characters. That's what mm-hmm. people were laughing at. Right. That's what he was talking about. That's what he was recounting. And you know what? And if you look at tragedy and comedy, those two masks, mm-hmm. there's it, all it is is a smile upside down, you know, mm-hmm. or a frown the other way. And that's what he made comedy out of tragedy. And that's when I first realized it, and I first watched somebody so bravely hit the stage and kind of cobble together what became one of our most brilliant seminal comedy concerts in the history of all of
0: comedy. And I think that's that that combination is what made Good Grief such a great show, and I, I didn't think it found the audience that it should have had, but I think it was, um, it, was it had its time. I think it was ahead of its time. I don't think people were ready to laugh at 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 funeral yeah, jokes. Yeah, you don't know.
1: You know, people always say there's, a, and, and I heard this probably more than any other human being alive. You know, Howie, there's a time and a place for this. Mm-hmm. I was never in the right place at the right time for these things. But as luck would turn out, I ended up finding places mm-hmm. and the right times. And I nobody feels luckier, more blessed more excited than me to be doing what I'm doing each and every day and to still be doing it.
0: Uh, if people want to follow up with you, where can they follow up? Obviously, you got, um, you've got you got Deal or No Deal coming back to CNBC. I got Deal
1: or No Deal. I'm still on America's Got Talent, which is a brilliant show. I tour constantly. You can go to HowieMandel.com and my website talks about appearances and you can follow me on Twitter at Howie Mandel and on Instagram and Facebook. I'm I'm everywhere. I've just gotten off of Friendster. I'm not going to do that anymore. Yeah, yeah.
0: I, it's, it's just it's such a time suck. Friendster's just so popular. Everybody's on there now. So I, I'm I'm switching to MySpace.
1: MySpace. Yeah, that's good. Well, you see, you you young people, you're so <laughs> so hip.
0: Yes. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, buddy. Bye bye. And that's it for our show today. Thank you once again to Howie Mandel. Thank you to you guys for listening. If you Want to follow up with Howie? You can go to HowieMandel.com, find out where he's going to be. Check out all of his upcoming tour dates. I have seen him live. It is worth seeing. He is amazing, so you can go ahead and check that out. Also, as he said, he's got Deal or No Deal coming back, and you, of course, can see him on America's Got Talent, plus the myriad of other shows that, that he is involved with at this point. Again, check that out at HowieMandel.com. If you want to follow up with us, I am Gib Gerard. You can find me at Gib Gerard on all of the platforms or Facebook.com slash Gib Gerard. And for John, it's at John Tesh or Facebook.com slash John Tesh. Now, Facebook.com slash John Tesh is where we do a whole bunch of stuff. We do Facebook Lives. We give you all kinds of information about intelligence for your life and all kinds of other stuff that's coming up. So that is definitely a place worth checking out or, of course, at Tesh.com. And that's it for our show today. If you like our show Please tell your friends about it. We are trying to get this going as much as possible. If you have suggestions, you can let us know at facebook.com slash John Tesh, or you can email us. There's a link right on our website at Tesh.com to email us and let us know what you think. Or you can shout out to us on any of those social platforms I've already mentioned. But the most important thing you can do is share it with a friend if you like it, or rate, comment, and subscribe if you like it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes a huge difference. And once again, folks, thank you for listening.